Well, Tina, thank you for your testimony. We praise God for the work that God has done in your life. And as we say so often to all those who have given testimony at church, we look forward to how God will cause you to grow into a mighty and faithful woman of God. <clears throat> if you have not heard or read about uh, Keisha Smith's uh, salvation, please log on to our church website as soon as you can. And in the members sharing section, she uh, sh- has shared with us her salvation testimony how this past Monday, um, God called her to Himself and she repented of her sins and she submitted herself to the Lordship of Christ. So encouraged by reading her testimony, uh, you'll be encouraged as well. Please do so as soon as you can. We are back in our study of John 17, part 3 of what looks to be a 20, 30, 40 part sermon or study in, in this chapter. Review the outline. Um, once again, verses 1 through 5, our Lord prays for Himself as He faces the climax of His earthly life. He prays that He might be glorified through the cross. Verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 19, our Lord turns His attention and His prayers to His apostles to whom He has manifested the, the Father's name. And he prays for their sanctification, verses 6 through 19. And then verses 20 through 26, our Lord prays for us. He prays for Cornerstone Bible Church. And he continues to pray for us. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that our Lord sits at the right hand of the throne of the King and he intercedes for us by name. He's praying for you, he's praying for me. And He's praying for our sanctification and also that we would be united in Christ. That we would be one just as He is one with God the Father. Praise for the unity of the church. The simple outline that will guide us through our study of John 17 is that Christ will be glorified. The apostles sanctified and the believers of the New Testament church, you and I, that we would be unified. We would continue our study and we will close the first section of our study this morning. Well, this past week, I was reeling from a blessed time at the retreat. And though I got in some good hours of exercise on Saturday afternoon at the picnic, dodgeball didn't turn out the way I wanted but I was sufficiently satisfied with the shots that I did get in while I could. Then you guys gave me a lot more than I gave out, but I'm content. And then on, um, we're able to exercise a little bit on Sunday as well. But this past week, I was uh, after a few days of just sitting in my study, reading and preparing. Uh, late, I think Wednesday or Thursday night, I needed to get some exercise in, so I went to the local 24-hour fitness I, I rarely go to sleep. Around 10 p.m. at night, went out to 24 Hour Fitness to play some ball. Well, when I got there, I already saw that our brother from Cornerstone was already playing. Apparent by the, his shirt soaked in sweat that he had been there at least for a few hours. And after we had been playing for a few hours, not a few hours, for about an hour, <laughs> we had both lost or something. We're sitting there in the corner of the gym together. And he turned to me and he asked me what my prayer requests were. He asked me what my prayer requests were. And he wanted fellowship through sharing of prayer requests. 
Well, I told him my prayer request is that one day I would come to play ball and not see him here. All right, that's my first prayer request. That was a joke. Okay. <laughs> um, I shared with him my prayer requests, and then I asked him what his prayer requests were, and he shared with me his prayer requests. And I thought about it on the drive home as I was praying for him. This is our believers fellowship, right? This is how believers fellowship. We don't say, "How was your day?" Oh, it was good. How was your day? Oh, it was good, right? You know, good weather. You know, did you see the game. Right? What are you going to do this weekend? That's not how believers fellowship. Believers are interested in what is in each other's hearts. And therefore, we ask, Brother, what is burdening your heart? What are you petitioning before our God? When you get on your knees at night, when you wake up in the morning and call upon the name of our Lord, what rises from your heart? What is your prayer request? This is how believers fellowship. This is how we manifest, as Priolo said. This is how we reveal ourselves to one another by sharing prayer requests and by praying for one another. And so, John 17 gives us a unique opportunity to fellowship with Christ. Because John 17, again, is a recording of Christ's prayer on the eve of His death. His prayers to God. So this is how we discover Christ. This is how Christ manifests God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And this is how we learn about the Trinity. We discover Christ not by miracle here, not by parable, not by a sermon. We learn about Christ and and God the Father through His prayer. Luther's quote, Concerning this passage, he said, This is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. He cuts open his heart and he pours them all out. His prayer sounds so honest, so simple, so deep, so rich, so wide, no one indeed can fathom it, end quote. Christ bears open his heart to us, his heart to us, and he prayed it aloud. We talked about that weeks ago. He could have prayed this prayer in silence. He could have prayed this prayer separated from the disciples. But instead, with the disciples gathered around him, he prayed it audibly, so that they might hear, that they might record it, and that John might record it, and that we might know it intimately that we might know what is in the heart of Christ. Now, what is in the heart of Christ? What is in Christ's heart? On the evening before His humiliation, before His suffering, His torture, His his awful death on the cross, what is in His heart? Through this prayer, we discover that in His heart, there was a singular and all-consuming passion to glorify God the Father. The word glory occurs five times in this prayer. And that tells us that just as the glory of God is prominent in this prayer and prominent in the first part of this prayer, that his heart was filled with one longing, one desire, one cry, was God's glory, the Father's glory. This is where we last left off 
verse 1, Christ's petition to the Father, where He cried out, Father, glorify Your Son. Glorify Your Son. We have noted that the glory of God is the revelation of God. It's the manifestation of God. Glory is by way which God makes Himself visible to us because He is invisible. No man has seen God, can see God, because one of His core attributes is that He is invisible. And therefore His attributes are invisible. But through His glory, He reveals to us not just His nature or essence, but also His attributes. So through God's glory, the, the invisible God is made invisible. Through God's glory, what is incomprehensible to man is made comprehensible. God condescends to us and reveals Himself in a way that can be comprehended by Limited man, so glory then is the display, manifestation of the full holiness and the invisible splendor of God. And Christ's prayer is this, Father, glorify Your Son. Before that He had prefaced it with, the hour has come. The hour has come. And that hour, through our study of the Gospel of John, we know that it's tied to the cross. It's tied to His death, tied to Calvary. It is amazing here that our Lord's request is that He would be glorified, manifested, revealed, not through power, not through might, not through strength, but that He would be manifested through frailty, through weakness, and death on the cross. Think about it. Our Lord's glory is tied to the cross. That's amazing. Because in this world, in our frame of reference, glory is always tied, connected to power and strength. Not weakness, not frailty, least of all death. Glory is almost always associated with a man's achievements and accomplishments. Glory has to do with success, not failure. Now, Fox Sports is a program called Beyond the Glory. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. It's an hour-long program all about athletes and how they have failed. No, that's not, right? <laughs> all their missed shots all their bloopers, all their mistaken plays. No, it's an hour all about their accomplishments, their successes, and the story behind their achievements. You know, before such biographies were done only for the super, superstars of sports. But with the proliferation of media and sports programming, like bios are done, about mediocre, subpar athletes. There is, my opinion here, but there is a biopic on Steve Francis. You know, pretty good ball player, but a whole hour on him, or even an hour on Chris Webber. Beyond the glory about Chris Webber, he has no rings, right? <laughs> but even such average, both of these guys don't have rings, but even such middle-level players, they fill an hour about 
their successes, their achievements, their glories. Mankind revels in his own glory by spotlighting on his successes. But how utterly opposite is the Bible and the Lord? If Christ had an hour-long show beyond the glory about himself, it would be all about the cross. It would be almost embarrassing to watch. It would be an account of his humiliation, of his sufferings, of his torture, his weakness. How meek as a lamb, he went to the cross and died as a substitute for sinners. He connected his death to his glory. Remember in John 12, when certain Greeks asked to see him, he spoke of his death and described it as the hour when he would be glorified. John 12:23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be humbled, to be humiliated, to be put to death. No, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Remember in John 13, 31, after Judas had gone out, Jesus said, the time has arrived. Now is the Son of Man glorified. That same connection is plain here as well. John 17, 1, the hour has come. The hour of my humiliation, the hour of my suffering and my death. Father, now is the time. Glorify your Son. The human, the human mind, this makes no sense. How is this possible? It is oppressive to our minds. It is confusing to say the least. It is disturbing to our souls. The righteous do not suffer and die. The godly are not to be humiliated. Jesus, as God's Son, should be glorified by being enthroned, exalted, and worshipped on high. Not by being tortured, whipped, spat at, crucified, like a common criminal. The world's not going to see any glory in that. The world's not going to honor that. The world's not going to esteem and appreciate that. But the amazing truth is that Christ prayed this prayer, Father, glorify your Son to the cross because so that God might be glorified through Him. So that He might glorify the Son. Our Lord gives us three reasons, three justifications why God must glorify the Son. And the first reason is that so that the Son might glorify the Father. Verse 1, that the Son may glorify you. And this is amazing, guys. Think about this. The cross is the ultimate revelation of God. The ultimate revelation of God. Jesus came on earth, humbled himself as a man, and he wanted to reveal God. John 1.18, no one has seen God, but God the only Son who has made him known, who is at the Father's side. John 14.8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus said, what are you talking about, Philip? Brother, you've been with me for three years, and you're asking me to show you the Father? Don't you understand that if you see me, you see the Father? The writer of Hebrews understood this. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of His being. To see Christ, to see Jesus, is to see God. 
He is the revelation of God. He is the glory of God. He is the divine radiance, the manifestation of God in flesh on the earth. So to study Christ, to study God, He is the ultimate revelation of God, the greatest manifestation of God's invisible qualities. We had bits and pieces. We had spotted revelation in the Old Testament, but we have the fullness of God and deity in a man, Jesus Christ. The most powerful and once for all proclamation is seen in Christ. See it through His life. See it through His miracles. We see it through His teachings. We see it through His character. And even in Christ's revelation of God, the height, the greatest revelation of God, is not seen when He stilled the waves. And imagine Hurricane Katrina. Category 5 hurricane. Christ walks in the scene and it's still. The wind stops. 175 miles per hour is reduced to zero. That's not the greatest manifestation of God's glory. Imagine there is someone who is sick, paralyzed since birth. Christ touches him. He gets up and runs. Right? Runs a marathon. Not the greatest manifestation. Someone is blind. Someone is deaf. Right? Someone is possessed by demons. A person is dead for four days. He calls him out from the grave and has dinner with him. Not the greatest manifestation of God. The greatest manifestation of God is seen on the cross in Calvary. Not through Christ's achievements. Not through Christ's power and might. We see God in Christ, through His weakness, through His suffering, and through His death. Isn't that amazing? That the cross is the clearest and brightest revelation of God in Christ. The cross is an awe-inspiring display of the invisible attributes of God's holiness, of God's justice, and God's love. I mean, it displays all of His attributes but highlight, let me highlight to you three things that we see on the cross. We see the holiness of God. We see God's utter hatred for sin. I mean, you want to see how much God hates sin? Look at the cross. Like, Why didn't Jesus just die by being thrown off a cliff? Why not just get beheaded? Right? Why not die of old age? Why the cross? One of the reasons is that God might depict the heinousness of our sins and how much He hates sin. And when sin is placed on His only Son whom He loved, this is how He treats sin. This is how He punishes sin. This is His wrath and anger towards sin. So we see in the cross and the ugliness of the cross just the intensity, the gravity of God's holiness. We see God's utter refusal to compromise with sin. Utter refusal. Parents might at times discipline their child because it is so hard to discipline their child, to spank his or her child. They might compromise, overlook sin. I didn't see that. He just disobeyed me blatantly, but I, 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 I choose to ignore it. I choose to overlook it. I choose to pretend that it didn't exist. Okay, I will discipline you, but I'll just give you, you know, 
a bad look, you know, or intimidating look, or, or maybe a harsh raising of the voice. We might do that because we're unholy, we're unrighteous. We're comfortable with compromising with sin in our own lives and above all in others. But we see in God, when sin is laid upon His only Son, we see no compromise. We see no easing of the punishment. We see no holding back of the hand. We see God in the fullness of wrath pouring it out on His only Son. On the cross of Christ, we see God's justice in His condemning it in the person of His own Son. We see God in His complete righteousness. He shows no favoritism, no partiality. He is completely just. Therefore, He is just to punish us of our sins because when Sin was placed upon his son. He punished him. He judged him. And in the cross, we see the glory of God's love. We see the love of God. The price that was paid to secure our salvation, to secure our adoption. Now, as Christians, we look at the cross and we see the cost for our adoption. How much it costs God to adopt us. When we were in Montana, uh, we came upon, uh, you know, in Montana, there are not many Asians out there, right? So uh, wherever we went, you know, we got, you know, some interesting, you know, conversation responses. It was all good with us, right? And we're in the public pool one day and, uh, one girl comes to Seren and says, Hey, is, is Emma from China? Did you guys adopt her? And Seren's like, No, not really. Why? Because we adopted a girl from China. Well, like, is that right? So we, we talk to the, Seren talks to the parents. We, we come and talk to the parents. And they're Christians. And they adopted a girl named uh, Annette from China. And they were telling us a story how they were sitting at church and there were, someone was talking about adoption, and they had $25,000 they had saved up to remodel their house. And the mom was thinking, what? What are we doing? We don't need to remodel our house. That's so vain. That's so selfish. She prayed in her heart, God, I would love to use this money to adopt a child from a foreign country. They got in the car, and the husband, she didn't say anything. The husband said, honey, what are we doing wasting our money, wasting our lives? Remodeling a house that's going to get destroyed. Let's use this money to adopt a child. So they did. They spent $25,000 to adopt a net who was abandoned by a river in China. Left for dead. And here she is, adopted by a Christian couple. And the whole family loves her. It cost them $25,000 to adopt her. Well, for God, what did it cost Him to adopt us? Did it cost him $25,000? Did it cost him $50,000, $100,000, so on and so on? On the cross, we see the cost that was paid. Once for all. It cost God everything to adopt us. It cost God everything to show us and demonstrate His love for us once for all. But the giving up of His only Son, Jesus Christ. And without the cross, we might have known about God's holiness. We might have known about God's power and splendor and sovereignty. We might have known about God's justice. But were it not for Christ going to the cross and dying for our sins, 
we would never have known the depth of love that He has towards us. And the cost that was paid for us to be adopted into His family as sons and daughters of God. That is why 1 John 4 says, Behold what manner of love that the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. What amazing love is this? Because the price that was paid so that we might be called sons of God. Calvin comments in John 13, 31, For in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines, indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. That's, a, that's awesome. The glory of God shines brightly, never more than in the cross. That's what Christ saying, God, glorify me, help me, sustain me, strengthen me through the cross, so that I might reveal what an awesome God you are to this world and to your people. That I might reveal through the cross your holiness, justice, and your love. That's the first justification given by Christ to God. Why God ought, must glorify Him. The second justification is that it brought salvation to man. Brought salvation to man. John 17.1 Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, because you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Verse 2 is a justification. Contains a myriad of profound truth. Verse 2 tells us, in the eternal counsel of the Trinity, before the foundation of the world, the Father gave the Son two things. The Father gave the Son two things. First of all, He gave the Son, because He loved Him, authority over all mankind. He gave Him complete authority. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Adonai. Writer of Hebrews says, who is He talking to? How can God be talking to God? Well, God the Father is talking to God the Son. The Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Hebrews 2.8 explains Psalm 110. Putting everything under His feet means that God put everything that is under His authority. God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Daniel 7.14 When Daniel looks forth to the Messiah, he said, He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. Nebuchadnezzar's dominion is, is, is limited. Cyrus's dominion, kingdom, is, is temporal. But His dominion is an eternal, everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Christ said, All things have been committed to me by my Father. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. John 3, 35, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. 
First Peter 3.22 Christ has gone into heaven. He is at God's right hand with angels and all powers in submission to Him. In the eternal council of, council of the Trinity, because God the Father so loved the Son, He gave Him two things. The first thing is, He gave Him all authority. He gave Him all power. He made Him the number one ruler of all the universe. Second thing He gave Him, He gave Him out of all mankind, He gave His Son as a reward for His obedience, for the reward of going to the cross, perfect life, perfect submission. He gave Him a portion of the people, the elect, and committed them to Christ so that Jesus might give them eternal life. Isn't that amazing? The Father gave the Son authority over all flesh, but, he, but not to save everyone. He gave, God gave authority over all flesh, and yet only a portion, only a subset, chattel property was given to Christ, so that He, Christ might give eternal life to this few, to the elect, to a portion. There are five clear points from the Bible about our salvation. Five clear points. First is total depravity. Second is unconditional election. Number four is irresistible grace. Number five is perseverance of the saints. These are five points from the Bible. And here we find the proof, the basis, the defense for point three. Limited atonement. Definite atonement. Note the definiteness of atonement. The limitations of the ones intended by Christ to receive eternal life. Christ didn't intend to save all and He was unsuccessful. Father, I tried. I tried. You gave me authority over everyone and I tried to save everyone, but I wasn't successful. You know, maybe I'm not all I'm made out to be. Maybe I'm not God after all. I'm not that powerful. I tried to save everybody, but I couldn't. That's not what verse 2 says. No. From the, before the creation of the world, the eternal agreement was that God would give, give Christ authority over all mankind, but only the portion would be given to Christ for salvation. And Christ's intention from the beginning was always to give eternal life to that portion to that portion, we must distinguish between Christ's universal authority and His narrower charge. Yes, Christ is authority over all mankind. But the design, intention, and the purpose was for Him always to save a portion. And He did that to its fullness. He did that faithfully. Now verse 3. Verse 3, our Lord in His prayer talks about eternal life. Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. What does verse 3 mean exactly? There are two possible interpretations of verse 3. Is it... uh, definition or description of eternal life 
or is it a description of the way in which eternal life is to be obtained? Is it describing eternal life or is it describing how one is to be saved, how one is to gain eternal life? And as by studying it this whole by by studying it for weeks actually, my conclusion is that it is both. It's not mutually exclusive. It's both and. First of all, it is indeed a way to eternal life. Way a person is saved. Because of the grammatical construction, it's parallel to John 3.19, we come to this conclusion. No need to turn there. But John 3.19 says this, This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. A parallel construction. This is the condemnation. Not a description of condemnation, but how these people were condemned. They were condemned because light came into the world, but they hated the light. They loved deeds of darkness instead. Likewise, John 17.3, grammatically the same construction. This is eternal life. How do we gain eternal life? What is the way to salvation? By knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, the Son. The Greek word is gnosko. It implies an active relationship between the knower and the object known. It describes a personal relationship, a personal knowing of God. And it also describes having a right view, right doctrine, a right knowledge of God, because Christ says, knowing the one true God, that is the way to salvation. Just knowing God, or knowing a God, doesn't cause you to have salvation, doesn't grant eternal life. More than sincerity, more than right desire, more than effort, one must know the one true God and Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, for one to have eternal life. And that is important for us. In light of verse 3, we can rightly say that America is not a Christian nation. It is not. Even though 95% of Americans claim to believe in God, with closer examination, we find out that the God they believe in is not the God of the Bible, but it's a God that is fashioned in their own image. It's an idol, a fabrication of their own hearts. A God that serves them instead of them serving God. Their God is God whose purpose is man's fulfillment, man's pleasure. God who is subservient and powerless to man's will. God who is a slave to man, a slave to man's history. The God they believe in does not lead to eternal life because it is not the one true God of the Bible. There is a popular tract out there that starts out, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That is not true of God in the Scriptures. You're not a Christian. God hates your sin and has an awful plan for your life described in Revelation. 
it is a merging, an integration, a synthesis of God of the Scriptures and the God of Deism. God of Deism is a God that exists for us. And they have merged this two, and this God has come and infiltrated the, the Christian church, and we're leading people astray. The God of the purpose-driven life is a God who exists for us, a God who lives for us, instead of God whom we worship and follow. In the whole book, there is no mention of the holiness of God, no mention of the seriousness of sin, there is no mention of a need for man to repent of his sins so that he might be in a right relationship with God. This tells us that the God behind that book is not God of the Scriptures or the God of your best life now, a New York Times bestseller. These gods do not, are not describing, are not pointing to the God of the Scriptures. Eternal life comes from only a right knowledge of God. First Thessalonians 1.9, Paul said, Keep yourselves from idols. We don't have these little figurines in our house that we bow to. You know, we put rice cakes out to and burn candles to. I think most of us, if not all of us, don't have that. But the idols of our age, of our generation, are... These so-called, these gods fashioned in the image of man, propagated by the media machine of pop Christianity, God who is sanitized and declawed of His holiness and righteousness, where God has become a buddy, a pal, an old friend, a cosmic Santa Claus that exists for us, exists for our needs, lives to please us. David Wells said in his book, No Place for Truth, the modern church has turned to a God that we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God who is for us and for our satisfaction. In the marketplace, everything is for us, for our pleasure, for our satisfaction. And we have come to assume that it must be so in the church as well. And so we transform the God of mercy into the God who is at our mercy. If the sunshine of His grace fails to warm us as we expect, if He fails to shower prosperity and success on us, we find ourselves unable to believe or worship Him anymore. Right for us to quote Pastor Steve Lawson of all days today. He said, We live in a day in which a God made in our image has swept into our churches like a flood and with it has come an unhealthy casualness toward God that often borders on blasphemy. Christ said, this is the way to eternal life. By knowing God. But just knowing God is not enough. That by just believing God exists is not enough. You must know the one true God and one true Christ of the Scriptures to obtain eternal life. This must affect our evangelism. 
knowing this, our gospel presentation must begin with a right view of God, right? We can't go and witness and tell people, God loves you, He's at your mercy, you know, He's cold outside, knocking on the door of your heart, will you please do him a favor and open up and let Him into your heart and allow Him to serve you, allow Him to bless you, allow Him to save you? We must not presume that their conception of God is at, in any measure a biblical conception of God. Our gospel presentation must begin with a right doctrine of God, of who God is, what He has done, and what He commands. Because knowing God and knowing Christ is the way to eternal life confirms again that our approach in evangelism is biblical. Whether crossing the street or crossing borders, we go out as a church not with arguments, not with evidences, not with philosophical defenses, but but we go on with teachings about God and about Jesus Christ. We go just telling people who God is, who Christ is. That is our job. Because when they know God of the Scriptures, they will have eternal life. First interpretation is true, but so is the second one. Just as knowing God is a way to eternal life, second interpretation is also true. Knowing God is eternal life. Knowing God is eternal life. Think about this. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is the present possession of believers. And therefore, the present occupation of Christians is to know God. We are saved by a knowledge, by the knowledge of God, and we are also saved to know God. Does that make sense? We are saved by knowing God. But that is not the end. We are saved to know God because that is eternal life. And in heaven, what is eternal life? We get to know more and more of God. There will never be a day when we have full knowledge of God. Every day He will reveal His glory to us. And every day we'll have the greater sweetness of knowing the glory and splendor of our God. Knowledge of God is not simply merely a way to eternal life. It is also eternal life itself. This is what we are called to, to know God. And this is our major occupation of life. Major preoccupation of life. Let me kind of um, tie this in practically to you. Um, you know, from the retreat, we learned so many insights, so much wisdom, so much, so many applications, and they're all important. I affirm all of them. But how do we get such wisdom? How do we get these insights? Is it by just reading Priolo books? Is it by reading all the Wayne Mack and Jay Adams and all those women books that are out there, right? Like Lies Women Believe and... Um, you know, what else out there? You know, <laughs> Proverbs 31 women is by reading all these books. I, can, I, I propose it is not. I propose it is not. Before you read those books, there is a prior commitment, prior knowledge that is necessary. And that is knowing God. I came upon this insight 
by talking to a pastor friend of mine, and he was telling me about a member of his church who was near church discipline. They were having all sorts of problems with this guy. He was playing video games all night. He was prideful, stubborn. He was utterly lazy. He has not held down a job for over six months. And he was, I can't go along because some of you guys might figure out who he is. No, I'm just kidding. He had, he had an unbiblical relationship with a girl. He was self-willed. Well, you might say, well, he needs to go see a biblical counselor. But the crazy thing is, he is a graduate of the master's college, and the master's program in biblical counseling. He is a certified biblical counselor. Right? He is certified by NAC. And yet, he's lazy. He's full of pride. He's selfish. He has unbiblical relationship with a girl. Right? He's self-willed. He is a burden and a source of grief and sorrow to the elders of his church. How is this possible? Because reading books and getting a degree or graduating from a college or seminary doesn't give you insight or wisdom. Doesn't give you maturity. Doesn't give you humility. No. If the foundation of those things are not built upon knowledge of God, knowing God, not oida knowing God, knowing the subject of God, about God, but gnosko, without a personal relationship with the one true God in Jesus Christ, all those things puff a man up. A degree gives him pride. Books read, placed on his library, placed prominently so that everyone who enters that room will see it, causes him to think highly of himself and causes him to be self-willed and against God because of his pride. All that knowledge and training apart from a personal, vibrant relationship and knowledge of God is in vain, results in pride and self-dependence. Let me quote to you a lengthy quote by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Quote, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea. But I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, nature, person, work, doings, and the existence of the great God who calls, whom He calls His Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our proud pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them, we feel a kind of soft content and go away with a thought, Behold, I am wise. But, we, but when we come to this master science, that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height. We turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's cold. And with solemn exclamation he says, I am but of yesterday, I know nothing. No sub subject of contemplation will tell, tend to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. 
He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of God and Christ and Him crucified. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect. Nothing so magnified the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the divinity. I know nothing that will cause a man's heart to be enlarged in the study of the Godhead. End quote. And you know what's amazing? Had, Charles Had Spurgeon wrote this when he was 20 years old. He preached the sermon when he was 20. Where, do we, where did he get this wisdom from? For a lifetime of ministry? Was it knowing certain insights? Knowing certain truths about the Bible? Memorizing certain verses? No. It was daily knowing, having a relationship with the one true God and Jesus Christ of the Scriptures. That is the foundation. And you seek God. You know God. And all these applications, all these insights, all the wisdom of the scriptures will be added onto you. But if you forsake God and seek after these applications, you'll be a man or woman puffed up with yourself in pride and selfishness. First justification for Christ asking for His glory was that He might glorify God, that He might give eternal life, the knowledge of God to His people. And finally, the third justification is because Jesus has glorified the Father on earth by finishing the work given to Him by the Father. The time is limited. I have to, I have to end Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Christ came on the earth and he knew his mission. When he was 12 years old, before the age of 13, he stayed behind in Jerusalem. Why? When his parents rebuked him, he didn't respond like a child. He responded like a man. Didn't you know? I must be about my father's business. Why were you looking for me all over Jerusalem? Why are you looking for me all over Israel? Didn't you know I must be here in Jerusalem doing my father's work because this is why I was sent? The intention, the focus, the purpose of his heart that drove his life. His mission was clear and he was active at it at the age of 12. In John 4.34, Christ said, My food, what I hunger for life, is to do the will of Him who sent me and finish His work. I'm not here to begin the race. I'm here to finish. And then He concluded on the cross, I have finished. He has finished the work. And Lord, I said, Father, glorify me because I've come to do Your will, O God. And I've accomplished everything You've called me to do. Humble myself. Came as a man taught your truth, taught your word. I did not depart from your word, left or right. Everything I said was what I heard from you. I performed every miracle. I healed every sick soul, cast out every demon, was compassion to every man you have commanded to do. And I've done everything perfectly and I've died on the cross in, in perfect obedience. And I've finished what you have called me to do. Therefore, O oh Father, glorify your Son.
three final thoughts to close our time. What is in your heart? What are your prayer requests? Let me think about it. What are your prayer requests? You know, what are, what are things that you're yearning for? What is the longing of your heart? You know, singles, what is your cry? Those who are married and those who have children, right? You know, concerning your job, house, relationship, what you don't have, your discontentments, what is in your heart? Dale taught us selfishness hinders ministry. Well, you can just continue that on forever. Selfishness hinders prayer. Selfishness hinders life. Now, I understand. I wrestle with my selfishness every day. The Bible tells us, and Christ tells us, a proven antidote to selfishness is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. May God grant us grace to replace our selfishness with the glory of God. That we will no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died on the cross and was raised again that our, our yearning, our cries for God to be glorified, not ourselves to be glorified. We will not pray for comfort. We will not pray for ease. We will not pray for a good life. That we will pray that no matter what happens, that God will be glorified. Secondly, eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God. Everything else flows from that. About reading books on God, it's rest of the, to finish out this year. If you have not read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, if you started and haven't finished it, how about finishing it? How about reading it? How about Trusting God by Jerry Bridges? How about Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul? How about all you men out there especially? The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. Right? Seven, eight hundred pages. Right? Put that ESPN magazine down. Right? Put that Sports Illustrated down. How about tackling this Home. about attributes of God by Arthur Pink about putting aside seeking um, insights and applications about seeking and knowing God and how about finally um, running to finish the race the final justification that Christ gave I have finished the work I mean, you got to give props to Christ for that because we're in a world where so many start, but so few finish. Right? At work, among your friends, your own life. Everybody's good at starting things. But how many do you know that starts, and when it gets difficult, when it gets hard, they plod along, and they persevere, and they finish the work. Let's resolve in our hearts to finish what, we, what God has started in our lives. Finish this race marked out for us so that we can say with Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Oh Father, we thank you so much that You've given us a glimpse into the heart of Christ. That as Christ poured out His heart, we were there 
with our cups to take it in. We confess and acknowledge our cups are small. And yet our desire, Lord, Lord, is for our minds and our hearts to be fully consumed by the prayer of Christ in the eve of His death. Oh Lord, there are just so many things that, that we need to pray for and we need. Oh Lord, may our hearts be consumed with Your glory. May our lives be one of being fixated on a, with a singular passion to, for You to be glorified in our lives. And to that end, O oh Lord, may we know You. May we pursue You. May we seek to, appropriate, to know and to appropriate truths of God into our lives. Knowing that it is the way to eternal life and it is eternal life. God, oh, we pray the life that You started in us that we would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would finish it. I know that many of us are weary of this race. We are tempted by our enemy to run away, to hide, to quit. Oh God, may the life of Christ here, the prayer of Christ here inspire us to not give in, to fight against sin, fight against flesh, to fight against temptation. And by trusting in you, we would run this race and finish the race uh, knowing that the end is near. Lord, we thank you, O God. Uh, John 17. May Christ's prayer humble us and inspire us to obey. In Jesus' name, Amen.